welcome to the Daily Poem here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern. Today's poem is, I apologize, coming to you a little bit late, but better late than never, I suppose. And this is a poem by Elizabeth Bishop, and it's called The Fish. Now, this is a poem that's actually new to me. Um, I only recently discovered it, and I don't know it well, but it was striking, and I wanted to share it with you. I don't really have anything eloquent to say about it. And it's a little bit long, so I probably won't say much at all, if anything, but I did want to share it with you. Elizabeth Bishop was born in 1911. She died in 1979. She was a poet and short story writer. She was consultant in poetry to the Library of Congress from 1949 to 1950, and the Pulitzer Prize winner for poetry in 1956. She won the National Book Award in 1970 and a number of other awards. So she is certainly considered one of the greatest poets of the 20th century. The collection that won the Pulitzer Prize in 56 was a 1955 collection called Poems North and South, A Cold Spring, if you're interested in uh, finding that. So again, this is The Fish by Elizabeth Bishop. I caught a tremendous fish and held him beside the boat half out of water, with my hook fast in a corner of his mouth. He didn't fight. He hadn't fought at all. He hung a grunting weight, battered and venerable and homely, Here and there his brown skin hung in strips like ancient wallpaper, and its pattern of darker brown was like wallpaper, shapes like full-blown roses, stained and lost through age. He was speckled with barnacles, fine rosettes of lime, and infested with tiny white sea lice, and underneath two or three rags of green weed hung down. While his gills were breathing in the terrible oxygen, the frightening gills with fresh and crisp with blood that can cut so badly. I thought of the coarse white flesh packed in like feathers. The big bones and the little bones, the dramatic reds and blacks of his shiny entrails, and the pink swim bladder like a big peony. I looked into his eyes, which were far larger than mine, but shallower and yellowed, the irises backed and packed with tarnished tinfoil seen through the lenses of old scratched isinglass. They shifted a little, but not to return my stare. It was more like the tipping of an object toward the light. I admired his sullen face, the mechanism of his jaw, and then I saw that from his lower lip, if you could call it a lip, grim, wet, and weapon-like hung five old pieces of fish line, or four and a wire leader with a swivel still attached, with all their five big hooks grown firmly in his mouth. A green line, frayed at the end where he broke it, two heavier lines and a fine black thread still crimped from the strain and snapped when it broke and he got away. Like metals with their ribbons frayed and wavering, a five-haired beard of wisdom trailing from his aching jaw. I stared and stared and victory filled up the little rented boat from the pool of bilge where oil had spread rainbow around the rusted engine to the baler rusted orange. The sun cracked thwarts, the oarlocks on their strings, the gunnels, until everything was rainbow, rainbow, rainbow and I let the fish go. I haven't spent a lot of time with this poem, like I said, but it's the kind of poem that maybe it's the kind of poem the poets will like, I'm not sure. The images are very vivid. It's it's very easy to imagine what's going on, certainly. So it's a poem that anybody could read. But it's a poem I actually discovered in a book by Mary Oliver called A Poetry Handbook, A Prose Guide to Understanding and Writing Poetry. And it's in a chapter, fittingly, titled Imagery. It's one of the samples that she, that she includes. And in this chapter, she also includes uh, Yeats's poem, The Second Coming. And this is what she says about this poem. There are metaphors and similes in the poems, devices discussed later, but there is texture. 
The poet gives the reader a plentitude of details concerning the fish, and this texture is vital to the poem. Such texture is vital to all poetry. It is what makes the poem an experience, something much more than mere statement. And then a little bit later, she says, The poet must not only write the poem, but must scrutinize the world intensely, or anyway that part of the world he or she has taken for subject. If the poem is thin, it is likely so, not because the poet does not know enough words, but because he or she has not stood long enough among the flowers, has not seen them in any fresh, exciting, and valid way. Man, this is one of those poems where Elizabeth Bishop has spent time in her imagination seeing and then translating that seeing into texture. And that's in some ways, I think, what the imagination of a poet does. It takes what it sees and it creates texture that we as the reader can experience. So one more time, I'll read The Fish by Elizabeth Bishop. And if you want to get a, this, this book, I highly recommend it. It's one of the best books in poetry I've ever read. It's called A Poetry Handbook, A Prose Guide to Understanding and Writing Poetry by Mary Oliver, who you've heard from on this show. That and Wendell Berry's book on William Carlos Williams' poetry are my current two favorite books on poetry. The Fish by Elizabeth Bishop. I caught a tremendous fish and held him beside the boat half out of water, with my hook fast in a corner of his mouth. He didn't fight. He hadn't fought at all. He hung a grunting weight, battered and venerable and homely. Here and there his brown skin hung in strips like ancient wallpaper, and its pattern of darker brown was like wallpaper, shapes like full-blown roses stained and lost through age. He was speckled with barnacles, fine rosettes of lime, and infested with tiny white sea lice, and underneath two or three rags of green weed hung down. While his gills were breathing in the terrible oxygen, the frightening gills fresh and crisp with blood that can cut so badly, I thought of the coarse white flesh packed in like feathers, the big bones and the little bones, the dramatic reds and blacks of his shiny entrails, and the pink swim bladder like a big peony. I looked into his eyes, which were far larger than mine, but shallower and yellowed, the irises backed and packed with tarnished tinfoil seen through the lenses of old scratched isinglass. They shifted a little, but not to return my stare. It was more like the tipping of an object toward the light. I admired his sullen face, the mechanism of his jaw, and then I saw that from his lower lip, if you could call it a lip, grim, wet, and weapon-like, hung five old pieces of fish line, or four and a wire leader with the swivel still attached, with all their five big hooks grown firmly in his mouth. A green line, frayed at the end where he broke it, two heavier lines, and a fine black thread still crimped from the strain and snapped when it broke and he got away. Like metals with their ribbons, frayed and wavering, a five-haired beard of wisdom trailing from his aching jaw. I stared and stared, and victory filled up the little rented boat, from the pool of bilge where oil had spread a rainbow around the rusted engine to the baler rusted orange. The sun cracked thwarts, the oarlocks on their strings, the gunnels, until everything was rainbow, rainbow, rainbow. And I let the fish go. This has been The Daily Poem. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back on Monday with another episode. Thank you.